It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to the patrons who help make the program possible. Patrons like Easy, Jim, Chris, Jeff and Nicole, Manuel, Karen, Sarah and Frank, Robbie and Janet, John, Dan, Joseph. They all became patrons just by going to thepetecalendarshow.com. They click the link at the top of the page there, and then they get access to the exclusive content. You can also subscribe by going to thepetecalendarshow.com, and that is free for you, and then you get the podcast every single day. Joining me now is Dr. Terry Stoops. He's the director for the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. Welcome back to the show, Terry. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So uh, when last we spoke, I guess it was, I don't know, probably like a month or so ago, um, we were talking about the Leandro case, and uh, there was a development with the judge, and we seemed to think that this was kind of a good sign um, I'm not sure if he was listening and now just decided to go the opposite direction. <laughs> but uh, So let's start off first off with, let's do a quick recap. What is Leandro, the school funding lawsuit in North Carolina? What is it? What, and what is it about? And like kind of where do we stand with it? Sure. Uh, Leandro is a case that's been around since 1994. And uh, originally it was based on the idea that there were some districts that weren't get, getting a, enough money in their minds or an equivalent amount to some of the other districts. And, and uh, through the years, it's evolved in, in various ways. It went to the Supreme Court a couple times. But right now, the case is, is sitting in a, a district court. It was remanded to a district court to be uh, uh, overseen by a judge. And the judge that's overseeing it right now is a guy by the name of David Lee. He's a retired judge. Previously, uh, Howard Manning was the judge that was overseeing the case. And, and there were there were, seemed to be developments every year with Leandro because Judge Manning would drag the state uh, and put them on the stand and ask them tough questions. Well, when Judge Lee came to town and started overseeing this Leandro case um, and and the idea that kids have a constitutional right to an opportunity for a sound basic education, uh, the plaintiffs and defendants got together and they said, let's stop fighting. Let's uh, create a plan that the judge will agree to that we can implement and that's when they hired a consulting firm from California called WestEd to develop this plan to, uh, to somehow uh, come up with the ideas that would be necessary to meet the constitutional requirement for the opportunity for a sound basic education. And the price tag on this, this plan is around $8 billion over the next eight years. The judge agreed to it, the plaintiffs and defendants agreed to it. And so now we're in that stage where they are trying to get the General Assembly to sign on to this, even though the General Assembly is not a party to the case. So this gets into a lot of tricky constitutional questions, a lot of questions about whether the plan that was put forth by this West Ed organization is any good, about whether the, the uh, courts have a right to tell the General Assembly how much they can spend and what the role of the governor is in all of this, because there are some calls for the governor to step in and play a more active role. 
Right. So the uh, initially this point where the North Carolina General Assembly not listed as a defendant, I think we talked about this about a month ago because it smacks of the same sort of thing that we saw with the Board of Elections, that the sue and settle the collusive settlements deal uh, that the Republicans were all up in arms about, that they they get sued or in this case, they're not even listed as, as a party. And then they get bound by a judge's order. And yet they had no input or ability to influence that order. It, it smacks of sort of the same kind of tactic. Uh, I think that is. And, and the tactic all along here with Leandro has been to try to find a way that doesn't require the General Assembly to extract more money from taxpayers. Because um, while there's a lot of uh, breathless appeals to the Constitution and about children's rights, the idea here, the central idea And it's a strategy that's pursued in many other states is to try to use the courts to compel legislatures to spend more money on public education by using these vague uh, uh, passages in constitutions and extrapolating a whole set of rights and responsibilities from them. Uh, This is just the latest uh, instance of this happening. It's been happening in other states. It's been happening in North Carolina uh, for for decades now. And now we're seeing what I believe to be the closest that we're coming to a constitutional crisis where the, the judiciary is openly threatening the General Assembly that if they don't act, then they will declare uh, declaratory relief, which means that they will essentially try to use the courts to compel them to do so. Right. So I've got the judge's order here. So first off, um, he says time is of the essence, which I thought was kind of ironic because they're the plan. This remedial plan is like eight years. So it's of the essence, but we got an eight year horizon on the thing. Um, but he says state defendants. Have pres- and that's not the legislature, right? The state defendants are uh, the Board of Ed and uh, Roy Cooper, the the governor, right? Is is that is that the defendants? Yes, uh, uh, yes. Essentially, the the state is represented by the Attorney General's office and the State Board of Education. So gotcha. those are both of the defendants. Yes, and so they have presented this comprehensive remedial plan outlining necessary actions. Moreover, the governor's proposed biennium budget for 2021 through 2023 um, and the accompanying bill, Senate Bill 622. I mean, this is like explicitly endorsing legislation. This is the Democratic bill that they have proposed in the legislature presents a balanced budget that includes funding to implement the remedial measures identified in the first two years of the remedial plan. The court further understands that House Bill 946, if passed, will fund and implement the first two years of the comprehensive remedial plan. The court has granted, quote, every reasonable deference to the legislative and executive branches to establish and administer a system that provides the children of the various school districts of the state a sound basic education. I find that, I mean, that right there, that sentence there where the the court has granted every reasonable deference to the legislature, they, didn't this judge reject any attempt by uh, the state legislature to get involved in in the process? That's right. And, and uh, the Judge Lee was invited by the Senate to discuss his views of Leandro and and ways that the legislature could work together 
with the plaintiffs and defendants and the judge and talk about these issues, and he declined. Furthermore, it's worth noting that this plan was developed without consulting the General Assembly. There was at one point where Westhead claimed that they had contacted one of the prominent members of the North Carolina House to discuss this, but that turned out not to be true. Hmm. So they had every opportunity during the development of this comprehensive remedial plan to engage the General Assembly and say, hey, what, what do you guys think we should be doing? And instead, they were excluded from that process. So I believe that the judge is being pretty disingenuous here. Not only that, uh, it was just a few weeks ago that the judge urged the plaintiffs and defendants to work together with the General Assembly and he openly stated that he was not going to force the General Assembly to spend the money. He was urging cooperation rather than competition. And weeks later, he comes out with an order that's just the opposite, where he's making threats uh, of the General Assembly. And and I think this is this is something that is uh, wildly inappropriate for a judge endorsing Democratic legislation, mm -hmm. legislation that hasn't been signed on or supported by a single Republican. So he is laying bare, I believe, his biases in all of this and and certainly not giving the deference to the General Assembly and certainly not giving deference to the Republicans in the General Assembly, which control both the House and the Senate. You're right. He says in this order, he says that um, that he is given every reasonable deference, including deferring to the defendant's leadership in the collaborative development of the plan over the past three years. If the state fails to implement the actions described in the remedial plan, um, says then it will be the duty of this court to enter a judgment granting declaratory relief and such other relief as needed to correct the wrong. And I'm just kind of curious as to how he got here from what you just mentioned when we spoke last. We were you were praising him, right, saying, oh, you know, he recognizes the constitutional limits of his power. This judge does. And you praised him. Um, and, and what happened? It seems like he flipped. I guess we were premature in the praise. Uh, that's right. Uh, and, and I was I was openly praising him for recognizing the separation of powers that has been a central part of the North Carolina Constitution since 1776. So it's not like we're talking about a newfangled concept <laughs> here. We're talking about a, a fundamental principle that allows our government, our state government and um, uh, and our federal government uh, it, to work in in various ways that ensure that uh, taxpayers uh, dollars and rights are being protected so uh, we we don't know is is the simple answer about why he got to this point there's some speculation that perhaps pressure from the left and the left has a huge group of well-funded organizations that have invested an incredible amount of time and other resources into trying to get the judge to be more forceful in forcing the General Assembly to fund this Leandro plan. Uh, perhaps uh, he gave in and caved to some of that pressure. Uh, perhaps he didn't like the way that he was being depicted uh, in the media. It could be any number of issues, but uh, without him explaining himself, and of course, without him really making himself available to discuss this, outside of the hearings that he schedules with the plaintiffs and the defendants, we'll never know. 
And the one thing you could always count on with the former judge that was overseeing this case, Howard Manning, is that he would talk to everyone and anyone about the case, the media. Uh, he, he was uh, open to talking to uh, individuals about where he stood in this case. Judge David Lee is not doing that, and therefore we have no idea what his thinking is when he signs orders like this. More with Dr. Stoops in a minute. First, if you are in the market for a mattress, then I have the place for you to go, Mattress Man. Mattressmanstores.com is the website. Uh, they have nationwide shipping. They have five-star local delivery service. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, and they have the best beds. This is where Christy and I got our mattress uh, and box springs, a king-size memory foam mattress. We've had it for about nine years or so. We love it, and uh, you will love the experience when you go to Mattress Man. It's locally owned and operated. You're probably going to be dealing with Chuck, the owner, great guy. Uh, but even if it's Wes or uh, you know the other employees that he's got at any of the stores in Arden and Asheville and Hendersonville, um, they're all great people. He actually makes a point to hire veterans as well. Uh, he does a ton of charity work in the community as well and they've got traditional inner spring mattresses, pocketed spring, memory foam, pillow top, natural latex. I, I mean, I can go on and on. They also uh, are an exclusive retailer of the Biltmore collection made by Restonic. So head on over to the website, check out the inventory, or better yet, walk on into the store. Any of the four locations, mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. My guest is Dr. Terry Stoops. He is the director of the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. You can read his work at johnlocke.org. Um, so this judge, David Lee, in North Carolina, is attempting to force the state legislature to essentially adopt legislation and a funding level, the massive increases in spending attendant to these proposals. Um, and these are proposals being run by the minority party. Um, and if the General Assembly doesn't do what he demands... He's saying that he has the power to set funding levels at his own discretion. I mean, they're going to be based on this plan that was submitted by this West Ed organization, but that plan has not received any kind of vetting, right? There's There's been no uh, critical assessment of this plan from the legislature, right? No, there hasn't. And, and if you examine the plan, you find... Uh... Uh, mistakes. You you find policy directives that are not clear. You find um, programs that have no uh, research basis. I mean, you find many, many problems with the plan and the West Ed report that it's based on. And I think that uh, had it been subject to a more rigorous review, perhaps the General Assembly would, would take it seriously. But it's hard for them to take seriously because everything has been happening inside the courtroom, in, uh, behind closed doors with organizations that have failed to reach out with the General Assembly. And so there's really no incentive for them to really just give up the power that is provided to them by the North Carolina Constitution and allow the judge to dictate the funding of multiple programs and initiatives that, in my mind, uh, haven't been proven to raise student achievement, which is really the underlying issue here. We shouldn't just be spending money for the sake of spending money, but it, if we have evidence that there are programs that raise student achievement, we should be funding those. And you find in this plan that there are some that do, some that don't, and some that uh, with the, with the uh, jury is still out on. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, some of the uh, some of the examples uh, listed here. It, this is an article in the News and Observer. Uh, the plan calls for pay raises, of course, for teachers and principals, uh, additional state funding to expand the pre-K program, hire more teacher assistants, hire more school nurses, hire more school social workers, hire more school counselors. In case you haven't noticed, there's a theme here. Right? It's just it's just to grow the size of the K-12 education system. I thought. Um, Senator Dina Ballard uh, from Watauga County, Republican, co-chair of the Education Committee. Um, uh, like, this is not language you generally hear from state lawmakers directed at judges. She said a court has no more authority to direct the legislature to spend money or enact policy than the legislature does to direct a trial judge how to decide a case. And if Judge Lee wants a say in education policy, he can run for the state legislature. That's the only way his opinions will have any weight. Um, and Because I'm trying to imagine the precedent now for this. If you have a judge that can just decide to mandate funding levels, then what's the purpose of the state legislature when it comes to uh, setting the budget? Right. Like, why should anybody care what the legislature does on that? That's right. And, and think about this from a, the perspective of voters. Here is an unelected judge uh, that is directing the state to do something rather than the elected members of the General Assembly, the 170 people that the people have elected to represent them in Raleigh. Uh, so, you know, from a representative standpoint, uh, this is a real affront to the entire representative democracy that we have here. So, you know, from that point of view, uh, I, I think Deanna Ballard is, is absolutely right. She's really been a, a warrior on this issue. Um, but it, it's worth going back to to looking at the role of the governor here, because what some people are saying, and, and this this did happen, that under Gover Governor Easley's administration, mm -hmm. he went and took money and he spent it he he directed it toward the pre-k program when the general assembly refused to do so and so now there was a call for the judge to tell the governor that he has the right to reach his hand into the pot and take as much money as required to meet the court uh the, the court's directive now i think that's an even more dangerous precedent and we had a recent case where the court said, no, the governor doesn't have the right to spend the money. This is in uh, Cooper v. Berger. This was the case where the governor claimed that he could he had uh, access and could spend federal grants that were given to the state. And in an appellate court decision, Judge Inman, a Democrat, said absolutely not. This is the the primacy of expenditures is a is the power that w has been endowed by the uh, constitution since the genesis of the state and it is the north carolina general assembly that retains that power so here is a ruling that said no the judge or the the, the governor excuse me has no right to take this money has no right to say that they he is entitled to spend the money it is the role of the General Assembly, but there are there's so much pressure to try to get a runaround, a workaround from the General Assembly that there are some saying that uh, the governor 
holds the key into trying to extract taxpayer dollars that constitutionally he has no right to spend. This was sort of the same issue at play with the Atlantic Coast Pipeline as well, where he tried to create a special fund that he got to control and dole out, and the legislature fought back on that as well. And and to your point, though, on uh, the, the precedent that Mike Easley did, this is being lobbied for by the WRAL ownership, right? The Capital Broadcast uh, uh, Company, they went and hired the former Mike Easley and Bev Perdue comms guy (laughs) to be their editorial writer. And he's got a piece out there uh, saying that the leaders of the General Assembly are at a crossroads. And if they don't act, the governor will. And I mean, like, this is an obvious and uh, unadulterated flexing of force, right? Like, you, you use the term constitutional crisis. And Uh, I agree, and I'm not sure that a lot of folks really understand, like, sort of the magnitude of what of what's going on right now. You've got a judge trying to empower the executive branch to violate the Constitution. And um, and again, like I I asked, like, what's the purpose of the legislature at that point? But the rules are very clear, right? They they have the authority to set the budget, to tax and to dictate where the spending goes, not the executive branch. And. Uh, and not a judge. It's it's amazing. It really is. And it's just what I would expect from WRAL to to try to propose that route. Um, you know, and and Judge Lee is an experienced judge and he, he has been someone that understands the law. He is from Union County. And, and I've talked to some attorneys that have dealt with Judge Lee in the past, found him to be a very uh, fair and judicious uh, a judge. He, he has been uh, someone that I don't think anyone would think would, would be this forceful when it comes to a blatant constitutional violation of the separation of powers. I think everyone expected Judge Lee to, uh, to really invest himself in the Leandro case, expected him to be a, a fair, expected him to try to make the best of the case and oversee it in a in a fair way and and what we have now is judge lee trying to uh basically create an an issue uh by by shooting a a a um a a a bullet across the bow of the uh the general assembly and and getting them to react in a way that perhaps uh, will for- try to force his hand. It, it, it's unclear what, what the next step is here. So yeah. if the General Assembly passes a budget, does that mean that Judge Lee is going to try to step in and stop the budget? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, who knows? I, right. mean, I, I think it's it, it's probably a, a, a conclusion that the uh, the governor is probably going to veto the budget. But that aside, and that's one of his powers that he can certainly draw upon, the question is, what is the judge think he's going to do? Is he going to? So I, I and I don't have an answer to that question. And uh, I think that every taxpayer should be worried about how that question is answered, because we need to really seriously think about whether our government is going to function in the way that uh, it is supposed to going forward if we have the judiciary making threats of the General Assembly. Yeah. All right, more with uh, Dr. Stoops in a minute. Now, if your roof is threatening to fall in on you, it's going to destroy everything in your house, right? So the roof protects the most uh, 
important stuff, the things that matter the most, the biggest investment you'll ever make. So you need to make sure that your roof uh, is solid. When's the last time you've been up there? Now, if you're like me, I don't go up on roofs. I don't do it. Uh, As I've gotten older, I'm not so great with the heights anymore. Um, Well, okay, honestly, but even before then, I was not a fan. (laughs) It's it's not so much the getting up onto the roof. It's the getting back down (laughs) off of the roof that is the concern. Uh, But my friends at Balkan Roofing, they will come on out to your house. Uh, They'll walk the roof line and they'll take a look at it. And they'll be like, okay, uh, we can see some problems you might have. And they can give you a free estimate. And sometimes you don't have any problems. That's a relief, right? Peace of mind. When's the last time you had somebody look at the roof? When Do you know how old your roof even is? If you don't, please call Balkan. Like I said, a free estimate. They'll come out and they'll take a look at your roof. By the way, you can also get a roof for as low as $69 a month. A whole new roof with financing from Balkan Roofing. Protect what matters most. Also, have you seen the increasing price of materials? If you need repairs, you want to do it now. Trust me. Okay, go to BalkanRoofing.com. That's B-A-L-K-E-N Roofing.com. Or call them at 628-0390. That's 628-0390. BalkanRoofing.com. My guest is Dr. Terry Stoops, the director of the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. A state judge is warning the legislature that he can force them to adopt a funding level for schools, an increase, a multi-billion dollar increase in education funding uh, if the legislature doesn't do so. Uh, It's part of the Leandro case, and it is a flip from where this judge was just a few months ago. And uh, so, Terry, the... um, this this question of uh, how much authority does the judge actually have uh, in order to do something like this? Are you aware of any precedent uh, where a declaratory judgment gets issued and the legislature has to abide by it? Are, are you aware of any precedent for this? Uh, I, I am not. And uh, th- there was a case where Judge Howard Manning, who oversaw it, directed the General Assembly to fund the pre-K program. Anyone who wanted a spot in the state's pre-K program would be eligible for it. And, and there was that kind of nudge to the General Assembly, but the General Assembly simply changed the program up and uh, that ruling no longer uh, really applied. Hmm. So, so I don't, uh, not being an attorney, I, I, I don't uh, have a good awareness of instances where the courts have successfully compelled the legislature to spend money. Now, in other states, what has happened is that um, state legislatures have rolled over and uh, abided by the judges. In some cases, the state Supreme Court oversees their school funding case. And so the general, their General Assembly, their legislature says, well, we're going to do what the, the judge is asking us to do just so we, uh, you know, we 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 uh, comply with with the judge's wishes uh, and and not create the kind of crisis that Judge Lee is threatening to create here in North Carolina. So we've seen some of that in Michigan. The legislature just kind of kind of ignored the courts, um, and and that seemed to work. There wasn't any any sort of uh, tension between the two, and the legislature prevailed ultimately. Uh, so, so we see this playing out in all kind of different ways in other states uh, and North Carolina. We might see the most contentious contest, depending on how forceful the judge 
and uh, Governor Cooper try to be. Right, because I could, I mean, you can contemplate various scenarios where the General Assembly, uh, you know, they adopt a budget, they send it to the governor, and he vetoes it. So who do you hold accountable on that then, right, if you're the judge? So, like, yes, he could be pressuring the General Assembly. He could also be pressuring Cooper, right, to try to come to an agreement, like if Cooper doesn't get his Medicaid expansion, which WRAL's editorial (laughs) also said, you should totally put that in the budget as well and then cooper will sign it well yeah of course he would um and so (laughs) yeah so uh uh, but this idea that it's just pressuring the general assembly it might it might not uh be entirely the picture right he could be also sending this message to cooper that you better also bend if you don't get everything you want but the general assembly includes this kind of funding uh, level for education, but they don't do a Medicaid expansion, you still better, you better enact a new budget. Because as we've seen, right, Cooper vetoes, they don't have the votes to override the veto. So we just keep operating under the previous year's budget. And so maybe does, do you think this might give some leverage there to um, to force an agreement? Uh, uh, possibly, uh, and it, it's interesting that you mention that because Seth Efron, the the opinion writer for WRAL, would like the judge to empower Cooper in in some magical way to to spend the money. So so that is, I, to me, it seems to be Plan B. Uh, if mm. Plan A doesn't work, which is to force the General Assembly, Plan B is to create a court order that says that the governor can go in and and start messing with money. Um, so, so that, that will be, uh, sort of an interesting to see if, if that is, is the case here, but as far as the state budget goes, uh, it would, you know, h- how do you, uh, justify a, a granting declaratory, declaratory relief against the general assembly if the governor vetoes the budget <laughs> and it just reverts to the previous year spending levels? Right. I mean, the General Assembly can honestly just say, well, we tried and the governor didn't like our budget. And so this is what we have to do. This is just the way of things. Um, and so that dynamic, if that plays out that way, then uh, we we will uh, perhaps. Uh, and, and, and by the way, let me just say, I don't mind if we keep spending the same amount year after year. Right. <laughs> uh, that's not such a bad thing. I'm not going to complain about that. But I don't know how the judge in good conscience could say, well, you know, this is a General Assembly uh, forcefully and 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 uh, arrogantly trying to uh, disobey a order from the courts if the uh, budget just ends up being something that uh, is reverted from last year's budget and the General Assembly keeps spending what they've been spending in the past. Right. And then what are you going to impound funds or something from the general fund? Like, you know. The General Assembly says this is our budget and it has all this other spending. It's not just education. And so what you're going to then say, take the money from other areas. So what are you going to defund now? Does the General Assembly get to make that decision on where the money is going to get siphoned out of to pay for this plan? Um, Or is the judge going to do that? Or is the judge going to tell the governor that he can do that? It's just like this raises some some really dangerous types of questions that, again, I'm not sure everybody is kind of fully aware of the ramifications down the road. Now, I also recognize that you got an election coming up, and so there's going to be pressure on a lot of these politicians not to be seen as, you know, uh, underfunding schools and kids, right? So maybe maybe there's the expectation that that kind of pressure 
could be beneficial. I'm not sure. But also, what's to stop the General Assembly from saying, you know what, okay, um, we're going to go a different route. We know you have your comprehensive remedial plan, but we didn't have any say in that. So we have another idea, and we're just going to go and implement, you know, this different plan, whatever that plan might be. I mean, I, you know, I would love to see just a complete voucher system, but that's not going to happen. But whatever plan they come up with, and then they have a different plan. So w- wouldn't that be just as... Uh, just as viable or just as uh, realistic to try to make this case that, no, we're funding this this constitutional requirement to provide the opportunity for a sound basic education. Couldn't they take that path? Uh, they could, but the judges made it very clear that the comprehensive remedial plan is not a menu and it's not optional. And mm. he expects every thing that's included in the plan to be funded at the levels that's specified in the plan. So I, I think the General Assembly uh, absolutely should uh, focus on on expanding our, our private school uh, voucher program. I think they should uh, provide ways to provide uh, incentive and performance pay for teachers. So I, I don't think anyone disagrees that there should be an increase in spending. But the idea that every increase in spending that's proposed has to be consistent with this report is really the crux of the problem here because – we want the General Assembly and we've given them the authority to determine where the money goes and how it's spent. And uh, the idea that they no longer have the right to do so because the courts want some other set of plans to be implemented, uh, I think is just absolutely ridiculous. And, and unfortunately, we have uh, a judge working with plaintiffs and defendants and working uh, in many ways in concert with the governor to try to do just that to take away that the powers invested uh, by the Constitution to the General Assembly and being able to dictate where taxpayer money goes uh, and find ways to uh, uh, just absolutely uh, uh, give up their authority to do so uh, in the service of a, of, a, of a case that's been around for many decades and, and is certainly just the subject of um, uh, a lot of attempts to try to extract money from the General Assembly through the courts. Yeah. Uh, speaking of money, actually, uh, you can keep more of your own money when you're buying or selling a home in the Asheville area by using Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. The phone number is 828-333-4483. She is the only official Homes for Heroes real estate agent in Asheville. This is a national program that gives buyers and sellers 25% back from the realtor commissions. Uh, this goes to police officers, firefighters, healthcare professionals, educators, and members of the military. So veterans, active duty, retirees. Uh, She's given back about $800,000 so far to local folks in those professions. So keep more of your own money. 828-333-4483. Call Rowena Patton and then start packing. Uh, My guest is Dr. Terry Stoops. He is the director for the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. And you can read his work at johnlocke.org. Also uh, quoted usually in the Carolina Journal, carolinajournal.com as well. Um, Dina Ballard, the state senator, um, uh, quoted earlier, she is the... um, co-chair of the education committee she said legislators invited this judge to share his opinions on education policy more than a year ago he rejected that offer but now he thinks it's appropriate for him to lobby for democrats bills from the bench this case and all those involved has gone off the rails and lost whatever legitimacy it had left 
Now, again, th- these are not comments that you tend to hear from lawmakers directed at the judiciary. And it makes me wonder if they intend to go to the courts to try to rein in this case and the judge. Do you think that there would be um, any ability to do that? Or is that, and I know you're not a lawyer, but do you, is that anything that you've heard discussed? Is that a viable option? No, it's not something I've heard discussed. And I think the worry is that if the legislature hints at their desire to be a part of this case or to weigh in on it in some way, then then they will um, get pulled into it. So that's why I think in the past there's been a reluctance to address issue the issue by the General Assembly. But if they are pushed too far and too hard by the judge if the judge is making threats uh, and and issuing orders that are restricting the rights of the General Assembly to do certain things, then I think it'll definitely end up in court. And given the court's deference to the Constitution and the willingness to uh, preserve the separation of powers and to ensure that the General Assembly remains the entity that oversees state expenditures, I expect the courts would tell the the uh, Leandro folks, the plaintiffs and defendants, and uh, that uh, they're going to have to find a way to work with the General Assembly because uh, there is nothing in the in the Constitution, there's nothing in the law that simply allows the courts to dictate spending. So. Uh, I think it may end up in the courts eventually if it gets bad enough, if Judge Lee pushes them hard enough. Um, perhaps even uh, we'll see the uh, governor get involved in, in a more aggressive way to try to get the General Assembly to do this. Uh, but as of right now, I think the General Assembly has always been reluctant to get involved in Leandro because they are simply not a party to the lawsuit and therefore it, it wouldn't make sense for them to try to get involved in a case that um, uh, they really don't want to become a party to. Yeah. Well, maybe therein lies this, this, uh, the strategy. Maybe the point is to try to get the legislature into the case, push them so far to force them to enter the case, and then they would be bound by uh, settlement rulings, right? I mean, maybe that's the way to, maybe that's the play. I don't know. Like, I'm just, uh, because it, it is such a, it, it's such a profoundly um, unusual type of threat that I've ever seen it come from a judge uh, against a legislative body that I'm trying to figure out, like, there's got to be some rational reason behind this uh, that would help explain, because it, surely it can't be a judge trying to dictate spending levels to the constitutionally appropriate and appointed body that sets those levels. I, I'm at a loss. Um, so, and I, and I, you are as well. I know you're, you're not on a, uh, uh, you're not on the judge's speed dial. He's not telling you this stuff either. So, uh, we're just kind of speculating here as best we can. Um, but on, uh, uh, let me shift gears with you, um, on the education front, because there is kind of a tie in here though. Um, this house bill 755 academic transparency bill, that a lot of teachers, they've been very upset that uh, that parents want to know everything that's going on <laughs> in their kid's classroom. Uh, and there's uh, there. And, and as I was listening to the arguments from the teachers union, don't call it a union. Um, they they were making arguments that, again, like I'm trying to figure out what what actually is the reason, because the arguments that they're making don't really make a lot of sense. It It seems to me pretty obvious that. 
if you're doing a lesson plan, it's not that difficult to post it online. And that's essentially what the law would do, right? That's right. Uh, the requirement would be that they would take their, after the end of the school year, they would take all the lesson plans used in the previous school year and post it to a, a Google Doc. I mean, we're not even talking about a sophisticated system. It would just be a, a Google Doc or something that would be easily accessible to parents where they can examine the materials and, and the lessons that a teacher gave during the previous school year. And during subsequent school years, uh, you know, we know that teachers rely on the same lesson plans year after year. And they can just go back and make the incremental changes that they've made during the school year. Um, to meet the requirement year after year. So after that first year where everything is posted, it's actually really easy for a teacher to go back and to, to make the changes, to specify changes that were in their curriculum. I, I think what, you know, what a lot of teachers don't understand is that parents really want cameras in the classroom. <laughs> they want to see firsthand what's going on. Um, and uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the cameras in the classroom, but that's really what parents want. So an academic transparency requirement like this is several steps removed from what most parents want, which mm. is those cameras in the classroom. So, so this is a compromise, number one. Number two, there would certainly be no need for a requirement like this had teachers stuck to curriculum and, and, and assigning curriculum materials that were consistent with the standards and consistent with best practices and consistent with research-based approaches to teaching students the, the subject matter. So um, the, the fact that we have a debate about critical race theory, the fact that children are being assigned uh, various assignments that are based on critical race theory. And I'm part of the Lieutenant Governor's facts task force. So I've seen some of this firsthand where parents are uh, talking about the fact that their ch children were um, uh, assigned assignments uh, to discuss whiteness and science, for example. They, uh, Ibrahim Kendi's uh, book, uh, Scratch, uh, 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 what is that? Stamped. Uh, a, Stamped. Yeah. Uh, stamped. Uh, the kids' version was assigned in their school. We, we're seeing uh, things like that that are arising that parents are legitimately concerned about, and that really leads to the desire for many parents to see what's going on in the classroom, along with the fact that during the pandemic, mm -hmm. there were a lot of parents whose eyes were open saying, <laughs> I had no idea that my child was learning this. So this is really the the best-case scenario for teachers in the sense that the other things that parents would like to see would require much more invasive legislation and and multiply the requirements for a lot of teachers to ensure that parents uh, and are able to see firsthand what their children are being taught in the classroom. Um, yeah, and you argue that the requirement for this um transparency for posting the stuff that you, you say it's necessary because of the haphazard nature of classroom instruction can you explain that i think because the the debate about the the social studies and history standards and the adoption and all that and a, a lot of people are confused about how exactly the stuff in the classroom ties back to the state board of education policies Sure. The State Board of Education approves uh, standards, and standards are essentially just basic outlines of what a teacher needs to cover during the school year. And uh, those are approved, and we recently approved social studies standards uh, for grades K through 12. 
And the idea is that districts uh, and teachers and schools have flexibility in the ways that they can implement those standards. They, they can tailor the curriculum to the needs of their students. And that often means that if, if you go to one school, the curriculum that they're using is often much different than what they're using at another school. It's uh, the reason why there's such a great variation in student performance is that there are some schools, there are some teachers that realize that um, the curriculum that's needed to get a student to achieve at a high level is not necessarily the one that's popular or not necessarily the one that's being used by other schools and other teachers. And so uh, the fact that there are research-based curricula out there that uh, some schools and teachers have used and some that schools and teachers are not using. There are some uh, schools where the teachers are going online and they're downloading um, uh, lessons that they believe sound fun, activities that sound fun, that may consume a large amount of time uh, and maybe not necessarily be the best uh, lessons for those kids. So you, you can see such great variation in what happens in classrooms, maybe not so much in math classrooms as in English language arts and social studies classrooms. And that therein lies the problem that with giving so much flexibility to teachers, you will have some teachers that will take advantage of that situation and use it as a, as a means to indoctrinate students rather than provide them the education they deserve. Yeah. Dr. Terry Stoops, the director of the Center for Effective Education at the John Locke Foundation. As always, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it, as always. Thank you for having me. Now, here's something else you will appreciate, this recommendation uh, for general equipment rental. Okay, so if you are looking to do a big project, and you know it's going to require some big machinery, and that's kind of intimidating, do not be intimidated. Go over to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Great people over there, family-owned and operated for three generations. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road, and they'll uh, they'll walk you through the project. You tell them what you're trying to do, and uh, they'll show you what tools can help you. The right tools can help you. They'll show you how to use them, and then you take them home, and you use them, and you get the job done quickly and correctly, and then you bring them back. It's a fantastic system. Now, maybe you are in the market for some outdoor power equipment. Well, they're your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda uh, power equipment sales and service provider. So uh, you're going to get great deals on great equipment from great people, great local business. Uh, go check them out at generalrents.com, and you can save 10% off your first rental. Generalrents.com, General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Think outside your toolbox. And think outside your toolbox. Uh, so uh, real quick here, this is just what the uh, the timeline is going to look like for this case. Uh, the judge has ordered that the defendants have to give a report to the court regarding their progress towards fulfilling the terms and conditions. And that's got to be filed with the court no later than August 6th. So that is the uh, the first deadline. Then the court's going to hold a hearing um, to address issues raised in that report and then any responses from the plaintiffs. Uh, that is uh, that hearing would be on or about September 8th. And then about two months go by to October 31 and uh, at the end of each quarter thereafter until further notice from the court. The state defendants shall submit status reports to the court that shall at minimum describe the progress they have made towards achieving 
each of the benchmarks identified in that comprehensive remedial plan, including an explanation and identification of specific barriers to implementing each benchmark not achieved in a timely fashion. So that's the those are the deadlines. You got August 6th, then September 8th, and then August 31, and then every quarter after that. They're going to do progress updates. I wonder if any of the... Uh, was any of the barriers or obstacles um, describe the progress they have made towards achieving each of the benchmarks and, and uh, an explanation and identification of specific barriers to implementing each benchmark? I wonder if the law would be one of those barriers. The Constitution <laughs> of the state. Yeah. Um, there's a piece by Justin Stapley that I came across. He writes a Substack newsletter called Self-Evident. Um And uh, this was uh, the title of this one was The Culture War is a Progressive Civil War. I thought this was interesting, and it does tie in with uh, the topic at hand. Um, He says, in our present day, the American people are no longer conditioned to comprehend citizenship in a constitutional republic. Instead, the political winds have conditioned them to think as citizens of a progressive or social democracy. And in a progressive democracy, the prevailing function of government becomes championing ideas of culture instead of preserving the ideas of liberty. This, despite the resilience of the liberal order established by our founding fathers. See, the liberty of the founders is one where the government thinks twice before meddling in personal affairs. It's a liberty crafted by those who aspired for human virtue, but believed such virtue is a chiefly personal venture, okay? Virtue can only flourish as private citizens are left to their own designs within the demands of justice, right? This is the idea. That's why I'm I'm limited government. I don't want government doing these things for me because that's not the purpose of this of this entire project, the American project. For this purpose, the founders crafted a constitutionally limited republic. Such a government, he says, uh, ably performs the basic duties of government while bridling itself through checks and balances. Virtue and culture under the regime of the founding fathers was not the concern of government. Again, virtue and culture, not the concern of government. Okay. And it was a matter of it was a matter for private society, personal, private lives. Under the constitutional regime, the government's only duty to virtue was to secure and maintain a sphere of liberty. Individuals under the US Constitution can pursue virtue and craft popular culture as they see fit, as they please. That's the idea. That's the order. That's what the system is supposed to be about. And it's protected by the military, which reminds me, Old Grouch's military surplus is the place to get real U.S. military surplus. If you are on your way to um, maybe go gamble uh, at Cherokee uh, or maybe into Maggie Valley or Asheville or Pigeon Forge or Gatlinburg, wherever you are going, if you're on I-40 and you're at exit 27, then you can just pull off and pop on into Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde on Main Street, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. Of course, the shop is open Monday through Saturday and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. That's oldgrouch.com. Now, Justin Stapley says, starting in the early 20th century, a challenge arose to this liberal order, and it was in the name of progressivism. 
It was a challenge that espoused a new kind of liberty. And this new liberty was one that progressives believed could only be possible through a state-driven collective effort. This would be an effort that treated culture as a centralized construct. The checks and the balances of the constitutional order designed to preserve individual liberty actually hindered this new progressive idea of liberty. See, where the the politics is downstream of the culture, right? But now if you can use the government to do things for the people that you then classify as virtuous uh, and good, right? And you have people that increasingly abandon the institutions where they were trained in virtue, right? And were shamed to engage in virtuous activity rather than unvirtuous activity, right? Um you know, through the, you know, castigation and, you know, uh, expulsion or, uh, you know, peer pressure, whatever. Like these were the the uh, the institutions that existed outside the sphere of government. That was the idea. Um, the progressives, though, of the early 20th century democratized and centralized the American Republic. He says, and they soiled the founding vision while the workings of the constitutional framework were far from thwarted. The progressive era drastically turned the minds of American citizens. Um, the view that government, he says, should be restrained in its vision and that culture should be allowed to progress free of government interference was largely cast aside, indeed, if not in word. Americans came to believe, and they still believe, that the state should reflect the spirit of the age. Right? Have you ever heard that uh, that term? Um they grew to expect the government to respond strongly to each of their needs. They abandoned the idea that the government should simply shield their natural liberties. Progressivism's chief tenet is the belief that a powerful state in the hands of a just majority can guide society and its prevalent culture towards virtue as a collective effort. I suspect that might be at play a little bit in some of this uh, Leandro case. Um, but also there's a deep irony here is that the progressive view is that the U.S. is inherently racist. It was founded on racism and all that. And so it's irredeemable because of that. Yet the progressive movement itself was profoundly racist as well when it was founded by racists. But for some reason, they're redeemable. <laughs> right? Yeah, the, uh, the standard that they hold America to, they don't hold themselves to. I know. Shocking, right? All right. That is a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, you can subscribe for free at thepetecalendarshow.com. Never miss an episode. Uh, you can also become a patron by going to that very same website. Uh, thanks so much. I appreciate all of the support. Talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. 